Craft Beer Radio presents Big Beers in the Evolution of Extreme Beer in America at Saver 2009 with Jim Cook of the Boston Beer Company. Attendees tasted bold culinary pairings with the Big Beers in the Sam Adams Imperial Series. Jim poured and talked about brewing the original Extreme Beer, Sam Adams Triple Bock, aged in the brewery's barrel room in Boston since 1993. The tasting concluded at the furthest end of the extreme flavor spectrum with a tasting of the world's strongest beer, Samuel Adams Utopias. You can find the rest of the Saver Salons at craftbeerradio.com slash saver. Craft Beer Radio is a free podcast available from our website or on iTunes. I appreciate all of you coming. Um, I'm a little embarrassed that this is a salon. Uh, uh, nobody's getting a pedicure. Uh, uh, we're just going to have beer. Uh, and um, For me, this is a very cool event. It's really... Uh, wonderful for the Brewers Association that so many people wanted to come. This is obviously uh, a new way of presenting beer to people. Um, our attempt is to uh, take you know the the normal beer festival to the next level, to uh, an event that people uh, can feel comfortable uh, wearing nice clothes to uh, and uh, bringing their spouse. So. Um, I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, everybody came here and there's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an expensive event, so it really is very uh, kind of you all to come. And we're going to do some interesting uh, tasting here, uh, and I haven't really written anything out, uh, so I'm just going to kind of wing it, but um, usually when I have enough beer, things work out okay. So... Uh, and... You know, we're going to have five different beers. Uh, we paired them with uh, four uh, different food items. And then the fifth beer, really, uh, there's, there's, not, there's no food that it, you can pair with it um, satisfactorily. But uh, it certainly it will stand on its own. Um, and as we do this, what I'd like to do is um, talk about... Uh, uh, the sort of the development of um, extreme beer uh, and big beer in the United States. And, and it's really become uh, quite a significant movement because um, I was tasting beers out there and, you know, fully a third of them are uh, within that category of an extreme or a big beer. So um, I want to tell you... Uh, sort of uh, the story of the development of that, and some of it is, is a very sort of personal uh, journey as a brewer in pushing some of the boundaries of beer out. And uh, one of the beers we're going to have um, is something nobody in this room has ever had, which is a 15-year-old beer. Uh, this is... Yeah, um, this is... Uh, the first extreme beer. It's Samuel Adams Triple Bock, uh, brewed in 1994. Um, this was the beer that sort of broke the sound barrier for beer. Until Triple Bock, no brewer in the 10,000 years of brewing had ever uh, been able to get beer above about 14% alcohol. Um, this was uh, this weighs in at uh, a little under 18 percent alcohol. So it was the first beer to kind of break the sound barrier, and um, it was the beginning of a kind of starship enterprise uh, approach to brewing. Of you know, let's go where no beer has gone before, uh, and we will culminate um, with uh, Sam Adams Utopias, which weighs in at uh, a mere 52 proof. It is um, by far the strongest beer in the world and has uh, a place in the Guinness Book of World Records. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Let me, I think we'll start, I mean, we're given that we, uh, oh, y'all don't have beer. Oh, yes, everybody's got, uh, do you have the first beer? Um, I might as well uh, start by uh, talking about this beer. Uh, this is, uh, actually I guess our newest beer, this is Samuel Adams Imperial White. Um, it is 
we call it an imperial because that's become a brewer's custom. Uh, it began uh, in the 1700s when uh, English brewers were favored by uh, the Russian court. Um, Catherine wanted English beers, and so the English brewed beers uh, for the Russian court, which at that time was in St. Petersburg. So the beers uh, had to survive the uh, long shipping up through the North Sea, through the Baltic, uh, to St. Petersburg. So they would make really big, highly alcoholic versions of, of um, their own beers, and they uh, called them imperial. Uh, particularly imperial stout, because they were meant uh, for uh, the empress of Russia. Um, so it's a philosophy that we took to uh, white ale, and uh, we introduced it in February of this year. Um, it's you can uh, taste it. It is about ten and a half percent alcohol. So we're beginning to get beers which are. Uh, approaching wine levels of alcohol. Um, certainly uh, the alcohol levels that wine had 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, uh, some of you may know, but uh, the alcohol levels of wine have crept up substantially in the last 40 years as uh, vintners, you know, fine-tune their, their uh, winemaking techniques and they basically figured out how to get more sugar into grapes. Um, so this is a traditional wine level of alcohol. The challenge as a brewer was um, to kind of deal with that level of alcohol but keep it from becoming um, uh, an, a, a harsh uh, sort of uh, burning kind of flavor element. About 8 9% alcohol, you begin to have to deal with alcohol as a flavor. And frankly, it's not a particularly pleasant flavor. If you've ever you know, uh, had straight alcohol. I don't know if anybody remembers the days of Everclear. Um, uh, or uh, that, there was a time when that was not a band. Uh, that was uh, 190 proof uh, grain alcohol, and it's nasty stuff. Um, it's not that pleasant. So part of the challenge was to mask it with a lot of uh, uh, different aromatic spices. And you'll get uh, 10 different spices in here. Uh, what I get, um, if you try to sort of take it apart, there is uh, a citrus cluster, which is orange zest, lemon zest, um, and a, something called grains of paradise, um, which has a floral note to it. Um, there is also a sort of rounded red fruit note, which comes from... Uh, hibiscus and uh, powdered plums and rose hips uh, and then you should get a little uh, anise, a licorice note and, and balance with some vanilla that sort of softens it and then there's tamarind and coriander so uh, those are the ten spices, it's always a, like a sobriety test for me to remember those, so uh, thank goodness I passed. Uh, and um, we paired that with a, a mimosa chocolate. Uh, we actually, at, at lunch, this makes a great mimosa. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, and uh, again, I'm trying to, I want to stretch your minds a little bit, um, but you can make wonderful uh, beer cocktails uh, by mixing Things. So, uh, you know, maybe 40, look, 40 percent, uh, so 40 to 50 percent white ale and the remainder of uh, 50 to 60 percent orange juice. It's really good. Try it next to a mimosa with champagne. It's very interesting. What you discover, frankly, the champagne doesn't bring very much to the drink. It brings some carbonation and acidity. And that's really about it. There's not much else that you can taste. The Imperial White brings a lot to the drink. All of those spicy notes, a lot of big malt body, carbonation, and then enough bitterness to keep the orange juice from being too sweet. So, again, I just want you to stretch your minds about beer. 
Um, it is not just cold and fizzy and in a can. You would not be here if you believed that. Um, I just want to push your minds out. Um, and I'm, frankly, I'm not going to try to tell you what you're tasting when you're tasting these pairings. You really are all uh, quite pap capable of judging and evaluating them. And the only guidance I would give you is trust the authority of your own senses. If you like something, it's good. If you don't like it, it's not good. Um, thank you. Um, but this was actually what made me try the mimosa, because uh, this chocolate was mimosa chocolate. And I said, wow, I, I bet I can make a mimosa with this beer. And it's really very good. Um, the second one is uh, just a basic, simple, dark chocolate truffle. And we paired that with Sam Adams' Double Bock. This was one of the first of the really big beers. Uh, I started making this in 1987. Um, it has about a half a pound uh, of malt per bottle. So there is literally a loaf of bread in every bottle. Yeah! <laughs> um, and there's actually, this is a very traditional beer. I mean, it's the most traditional of all of these. This is, uh, was a pre-existing beer style, has an interesting history. It was developed uh, by the monks in uh, Bavaria because uh, they were, uh, most of brewing was a monastic art during the Middle Ages, uh, basically because the church could make a lot of money on it. So they monopolized brewing, and, um, they, and, and monks could pass the technology down uh, in a relatively chaotic civilization. And the poor monks, uh, every year along came Lent, and the poor monks had to fast during Lent, and that was 40 days. Uh, but like all of these harsh religious rules, there was a loophole. Uh, and the loophole was while they couldn't eat food, they could drink. So uh, being enterprising brewers, the monks would make the strongest, most nourishing beer that they could. Um, and it was their salvation. And in fact, uh, they called it Savior, um, which in Latin is Salvator. Uh, and as a result, if you look at, uh, so the naming tradition for double box is that they end in E-R or O-R. Um, so you get uh, all, a beer that ends in E-R or O-R is a double box. Salvatore, uh, my favorite Terminator, uh, Obliterator, Illuminator. Um, but those are all double box that are built on the original monastic tradition of brewing. And this was... You know, sort of the personal history of it. I started brewing Samuel Adams in 1984. It was obviously a very striking beer 25 years ago when you didn't find beers that were 30 bitterness units, um, you know, 13 degrees Play-Doh, all malt, um, original gravity, croissant, decoction mashed, dry hopped. I mean, back then people thought dry hopping was what you did in high school, and um, it was very, uh, uh, try to make people realize that brewing had all these interesting parts of the process. Uh, and uh, two years into it, I thought, well, let me try another style. Uh, let's try something really big. So um, Double Bach was the result of wanting to push the envelope of brewing at that point. Um, the third beer we have here is uh, paired with this Black Forest chocolate. Um, it's Samuel Adams Imperial Stout. Uh, again, it's about 10% alcohol. Uh, it's about three times the alcohol of Guinness. So uh, if you've had Guinness, that's good. You've been practicing for this beer. Hopefully you're ready. Um, we made an obvious pairing here. Um, this chocolate has cherries in it. Um, that's what you're tasting. Uh, you'll find that the cherry 
actually lingers longer after the chocolate washes away and you swallow it and stuff, you'll still get some of the cherry. And uh, a stout, uh, a cream stout or an imperial stout is just a great pairing with any kind of red fruit. Cherries, um, strawberries, raspberries, just all these uh, chocolate notes in here. Pick up the chocolate and highlight the cherries. And uh, if you want to try another beer cocktail, um, Sam Adams Cream Stout or Imperial Stout with our cherry wheat uh, is delicious. You know, two-thirds stout, one-third cherry wheat. Uh, it's like a chocolate-covered cherry. It's a really nice pairing. Um, and let me talk a little bit about uh, the beginning of extreme brewing. And um, it began uh, with this stuff. Uh, this is Samuel Adams' Triple Bach. And the orig origins of this, um, it was in 1993-94. And it came out of uh, what had been going on with craft brewing. Uh, because the original motivation for craft brewing and what was the drive for... Uh, you know, additional styles of beer, it was within a, a sort of, to me, uh, an annoyingly confined paradigm because what craft brewers were doing was bringing to the United States classic old world styles. That was what was driving uh, brewers' repertoires of finding old world styles of beer increasingly uh, arcane and, and trying to make them. You know, and so people would make a porter or, uh, you know, an IPA or an ESB or a strong ale or a best bitter or uh, a, in the, on the lager side, uh, a Dortmund, I mean, a uh, Dusseldorfer or, or a Dortmunder. Um, and it was basically about taking old world styles and making them here in the United States. And that uh, just seemed kind of un-American to me. I mean, one of the things about being an American brewer is you approach the brewer's art differently than Europeans. Because um, yeah! this is America, and we uh, are willing to do sort of unusual, crazy things. Um, we have an incredibly diverse culture, um, and we're willing to blend lots of elements. And uh, you just have this sort of restless dissatisfaction with the status quo. And that's a, a wonderful American trait that has, has, was kind of where I got to in the early 90s. I'd made maybe six or eight different uh, styles of beer, uh, Oktoberfest, uh, Dunkelweizen, a porter, scotch ale... Um, uh, uh, stock ale uh, and uh, several others and I thought hmm um, let me rethink about beer and uh, it required going back to the sort of first principles and rethinking what beer is um, because uh, beer is not what you think it is and, I'm, and I say that uh, not knowing what any particular definition is, but beer is not what any of you think it is. Uh, uh, and I'll just ask, what is? Def, can somebody define beer for me in one sentence? We have a microphone too. If you want to try, I'm yeah, that I know, dude. <laughs> um, <laughs> any, uh, and I'll drink with you. <laughs> I, I love Good. Um, <laughs> Anybody, can anybody give me the definition of beer? It is yeast. It's what? No. If that's true, Budweiser wouldn't be beer. Um, but it is beer. Yes, yes. Liquid bread of life. The liquid bread of life. That's very poetic. I like that. Um, here's what beer is. And I'll, I'll give you very simply... Uh, the division for all, all alcoholic beverages. 
Beer is fermented grain. Yes. Wine is fermented fruit. And liquor is the distilled product of an earlier fermentation. That's it. It's that simple. Beer is fermented grain. Wine is fermented fruit. That's why, like, sake, they call it uh, rice wine. Well, that that's idiotic. Um, if fermenting rice made wine, Budweiser would be the largest winery in the world. But uh, as far as I know, they make beer. So that's what beer is. And you, you, you go back to first principles and say, all right, beer is fermented grain. Now, within that, what can I do? And that original idea was the inspiration for uh, Utopias. Uh, And the thing that was uh, an opportunity, I thought, is there were nobody, no brewer in 10,000 years of brewing had ever gotten beer above about 14% alcohol, between 13 and 14%. And I knew that I could go further than that. Um, I knew enough about uh, brewing and what our yeast could do and uh, the techniques we were using that we could go beyond that. And that was uh, this Starship Enterprise approach of let's take beer where no beer has gone before and let's see what new worlds there are there. And it resulted in this. Uh, And this was uh, sort of, to me, it ended up being sort of like a Christo project, you know, the artist who like wraps buildings and um, runs fences through Central Park. Um, This was the same sort of project in that it had um, artistic elements, technical elements, and... uh, you know, social structure, regulatory uh, elements, because it had to exist in a society with rules and order. Um, And uh, there were a whole bunch of different things that came together in it. Um, The, uh, you know, the brewing part of it was realizing at these levels of alcohol, you you don't taste like what people consider beer to be. Uh, it's not carbonated. You know, when you get to 17, 18% alcohol, the CO2 has long since fled the premises. It is gone. Um, you cannot dissolve CO2 in uh, an alcohol solution at that level. That's why you don't have carbonated, you know, vodka um, and stuff like that. The Yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's the Starship Enterprise approach. Let's just go do stuff and see what happens. No, well, it, it gives you a different set of flavors. Um, and we had to breed this alcohol-tolerant yeast to deal with these high levels of alcohol. It's basically using natural selection to find yeast with thicker cell walls um, that will stand the higher alcohol level. But that was part of the brewing. And then um, there were a whole bunch of other things, like I wanted it in a black bottle. Well, you cannot make black bottles um, because you, if you have black glass, you can't inspect it for what are called bird's wings, which are these diaphanous butterfly wing-like uh, arcs of glass that when you fill the bottle, they, they get broken and you end up with ground glass in the bottle, and people are kind of allergic to having ground glass in in their beverages. So, um, but we were able to find somebody who dumped a bunch of cobalt into their furnace and came up with a cobalt blue bottle. When you put the liquid in it, it's black. Um, We then had to figure out, as the alcohol got higher, how do we deal with the sort of ferocious ethanol attack on the palate? And... Uh, I thought about it, and uh, the solution was actually very simple. It was a solution that I didn't discover. It was discovered by ignorant, probably illiterate farmers in central Kentucky 200 years ago who, uh, in those rural areas, uh, they could grow corn, but there was no way to get corn to market. It was very difficult to transport. 
So they took their corn and they made it into whiskey. Um, moonshine, which I don't know if you've ever... I grew up in southern Ohio, right across the river from Maysville, and it is nasty stuff when you're drinking out of a mason jar. Um, the, these farmers, though, discovered that if they took that nasty moonshine and uh, they took oak barrels and charred them on the inside, that if they put their moonshine in there and left it for a year or two, it mellowed, smoothed out, and became uh, this very drinkable, very palatable form of whiskey, which subsequently became known as bourbon. So um, we got used bourbon barrels. We aged this uh, 35 proof beer in it, and that smoothed and mellowed it out. Um, and then we had to figure out that there's still yeast in here. There is still uh, a small amount of yeast, which is slowly, at an almost microscopic level, continuing to ferment. Um, so we had to figure out, well, how do we put a cap on this thing and not have it blow up? Um, because anybody who's homebrewed knows, you know, if you screw up and overprime it, you got little hand grenades going off in your basement. Um, and we didn't want to have a whole bunch of those. So we actually found somebody who makes this capsule, and it's slightly elastic. So we then put a sherry cork in here, and uh, if gas has to be released, uh, it stretches up enough for the gas to burp out of the bottle and then comes back down. So that was how we closed it. Um, and then, you know, it turned out it was illegal in 15 states, which was okay, because screw them, you know, it's not my problem. Um, and, uh, and then we had to, again, change people's notions of beer, because it's obviously very expensive to make. Uh, we, sold it, we sold it for uh, $100 a case. Uh, which was way beyond what anybody thought beer could sell for, but it turned out we sold every single case that we made. Um, and we, the only ones that we kept are some of them we'll be tasting. But it, and that changed, that was a, uh, that changed people's paradigm for beer. And, you know, and when it came out, I started getting calls from uh, people in press that were like, well, that's, uh, what kind of beer is it? I mean, that's not beer. Um, what do you call this stuff? Because it's clearly different. And this was 1994. It was the time of the X Games um, when they just, you know, hit ESPN2. Um, and uh, these, they were extreme sports. Uh, that's where the X in X Games came from, is extreme sports. And um, so that was where the name came from. Um, I... Uh, I said, well, this is extreme brewing. Uh, and, and people said, because it's, well, it's not beer. Uh, and at, this, at that time, people were saying that these sports that became the X Games were not real sports. They were just, you know, kids having fun. And I was like, well, as far as I know, that's what sports are, is kids having fun. You don't have to have a shoe contract and a billion-dollar stadium to be a sport. So um, that's, this was the origin of the term extreme brewing. It came from that analogy to the X Games and to extreme sports. And my definition of extreme brewing is uh, beers that uh, add um, flavors and brewing techniques and ingredients to beer that, have, that are significantly different and have never been done before. To me, that's an extreme beer. Other people, you know, have defined it differently, but that was my original uh, idea and my original definition of what was an extreme beer, was a beer that pushed out the boundaries of beer and brewing beyond anything that had ever been done before. And it really threw a challenge out to brewers uh, that's been taken up by American brewers who have developed many uh, interesting, unique, new styles and um, the notion that I would want you to uh, carry away from here um, as brewers or drinkers is uh, to and this is why 
it was changing the paradigm from bringing traditional styles of beer to inventing new styles. What you have to remember is that um, things like champagne or cognac or porter, um, these beverages that we know and enjoy today, they didn't always exist. You know, they didn't exist when God made rocks and trees and dirt. Um, they were the creations of human beings and the restlessness of human beings wanting to do new and interesting things. And what I want everybody to remember is uh, that every great, wonderful style of beer that can be brewed and enjoyed has not yet been created. There are beers that haven't been created yet, and I believe that a uh, hundred years from now, brewers will look back on this time and this place, you know, this historical moment, and go, wow, I wish I were brewing then. That was when all these really cool new beers were invented and created. And I wish I were a brewer back then. So this may well be the best time and the best place in history to be a brewer. And hopefully, I mean, these beers were part of uh, that paradigm shift to say, let's go find those great beers that have never been made and let's go make them. I believe it's American craft brewers who will do that. Oh, um, do we have some of this? What do you all have? Do you have... Okay. Oh. Okay. Um, let's see. Mm. I mixed them up. Okay. Um, you all have this? This is uh, a very... I don't, none of you have ever had this experience. This is a beer that has been in the bottle for 15 years. I mean, this beer was made, I mean, before Newt Gingrich was even yeah. Newt Gingrich. So... Uh, this was from 1994, and, you know, I, when I made it, uh, I had no idea what we were going to get, and I certainly had no idea how it would age. Um, I was hoping it would age gracefully. I think it actually has. I mean, I'll tell you what I get in it. Um, to me, this is towards the port side of things. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, ripe fruit in there. I got a lot of dark fruit, um, sort of raisins, prunes, figs, um, a lot of big dark fruit. I get a yeasty note, which comes across as sort of meaty, savory kind of note. Um, and a very nice balance between uh, the sweetness from the residual sugars um, uh, and the alcohol. And so the alcohol comes across to me not as uh, fiery and hot, but rather uh, as sweet and smooth. But just enough hop bitterness to keep it from being cloying. So um, this is 15-year-old beer. That's very interesting. It's, I haven't had this for a couple of years. Go. Um, Wow. And we paired it with the cheese. Um, and beer and cheese is one of my favorite things. It is one of the great myths of the food world that wine pairs well with cheese. It doesn't. It only pairs with very bland cheeses, bries, and things like that. When you get... Um, I'll give it better than that, but with a big, flavorful acidic cheese like this. I mean, this is um, a lot of, it's very creamy, it's got a lot of acid in it. Um, it to me, the beer cuts through this uh, much better than anything else. You, because it's um, so acidic, you need some sweet. And it's kind of nutty and the roast, uh, the roasted notes in beer go well with the nuttiness of cheese. Ray, um, I'm sorry, Randy Mosier uh, wrote a great book called Tasting Beer, reminds yes. us that one of our favorite 
foods is grilled cheese sandwiches. I mean, everybody loves a grilled cheese sandwich. It just tastes good from the time you're five years old even to today. And the reason is um, a really nice cheese deserves to be with some caramelized sugars. Um, and that's what happens in the toast. When you grill that bread, you go, you, it's called the Maillard reaction. You caramelize uh, the sugars in the bread, and that's exactly what you do when you roast malt. The exact same reaction, the exact same Maillard reaction. Uh, so uh, a beer and a, a flavorful beer and a cheese have the exact same uh, compatibility as a grilled cheese sandwich presents. Yeah, this is like a really nice port with a good cheese. Only smoother. Um, and then the last beer that we have uh, is this thing. And, of course, uh, it's actually a, um, an interesting representation of what you have to deal with as a brewer. Okay, here to this event, you know, very food-savvy people. We send in um, 52 proof, $150 a bottle beer, um, which is much closer to cognac or uh, old sherry or vintage port. And what do they do? They put it uh, in the refrigerator. Because, um, oh, it's beer. you got to chill it down. Um, that's not true. So does everybody, does everybody have utopias? Everyone, everyone has that now. Okay. You know, I don't think I got any. Um, Robin, can I? Or Julia? Okay. Um, so this is the strongest beer in 10,000 years of brewing here. Thank you very much. Um, we, do bl- we do a fun thing with this. Uh, because, you know, uh, when I started Sam Adams, uh, there was a different challenge than today. When I started Sam Adams, the main challenge was to convince beer drinkers, bar owners, and so forth that an American beer could be as good as an import. I mean, it was, it's bizarre now to think about it, but when I started, people would look at Sam Adams and go, well, it's an American beer. Um, how come it doesn't taste like Budweiser? And I was like, well, why should it? Um, and the idea that I could charge as much for Sam Adams as they were getting for Corona was appalling to people. How can you charge as much for Sam Adams as an import? Um, and it was very easy because it's, it's better. Taste them. Um, but that sort of mystique that imported beer had was one of the big barriers to the growth of craft beer back then. And it still is in a little way. You know, there are a lot of beer drinkers who go out and drink Stella Artois and think they're drinking one of the great beers of the world. I mean, they're all Americans. Belgians are under no such delusion. Um, but Americans drink these you know, mass-produced European beers and think they're good. They just do. And it's, I mean, it's bizarre and stupid if you're a brewer, but we're not the only stupid people. I mean, you, today you can go to London, go to a, a pub that has, you know, real ale, that'll have casks of Samuel Smith, uh, and they're selling that for three pounds for a pint. If you want something better, you want to pay five pounds, what do you think Londoners buy for five pounds a bottle of Budweiser. Honest to God. It's true. I mean, uh, how do you think Mexicans feel when they come here and they see us paying eight bucks for a six-pack for Corona? They're like, what are you, crazy, you loco? Um, but there's some weird deal in people's minds. If something comes from far away, they think it has to be superior. Don't ask me why, but we're not the only idiots. Uh, I, that... Uh, will that misconception is falling and will fall just under the sheer weight of its own foolishness. The idea that, you know, European beers are superior to American beers is simply uh, stupid. Um, And it will fall. Where we are going now, um, and so I think that battle is and will be won. Um, this event is about the next level, looking out over the next 25 years. And as brewers, one of 
the misconceptions that uh, we have to deal with is that um, beer should take a second place to wine in terms of dignity, flavor, tradition, respect. And as a brewer, I know that that's just not true. And I think the purpose of this event is to demonstrate to people that beer uh, deserves a place at the table alongside wine if you're having good food. And you all know that. And, you know, you guys are the missionaries for this. Uh, you know it. And 25 years from now, everybody will know it. But it's going to take a while. We, this is a utopious, um, we do a very fun thing with this. Which is, uh, again, when I started Sam Adams, when I'd go to a new city, um, I'd get as much of the press together as I could get with a free lunch and free beer, which was a decent representation. Um, and I'd do a blind tasting. I'd say, all right, you had a nice meal. I'd like you to help me. I'm going to give you five different beers. They are, um, they're all good. There's, not, there's no ringers here. Um, and you won't know what they are. They're in unmarked glasses. But I'd like you to just taste them and evaluate them and pick the best one. And they were the four biggest imported beers, which at that time were Heineken, Corona, uh, Molson, and Beck's. Those were the five biggest import, And I put them along Sam Adams. And we never lost. We ne and it was very uh, credible way to demonstrate to reporters that uh, Sam Adams is a better beer than those. Because I'd say, don't believe me. Don't believe anything that you've been told. The only thing you should believe is the authority of your own senses, which I was talking about earlier. We do the same thing with Utopias, only with wine. Um, we've done it about 20 times. Uh, I'm going to do it uh, two weeks from now at the Aspen Food and Wine Classic, uh, which is a big, major foodie event. Uh, we'll, and in, what we're going to give people, we're not going to give them Corona and Beck's and, you know, stuff like that. That battle is over. Um, we will, we're going to give them three snifters. They will be A, B, and C. We've done this for years. Um, a, uh, in snifter A, we called the wine spectator and we said, what is the best port ever made? And it turns out there is one port that got a perfect 100-point rating from the wine spectator, one of the few wines uh, that's ever gotten a 100-point rating. It's a 1994 Fladgate. So we get some bottles of that. I think it's like two, $300 a bottle. Um, and that's A, arguably the best port ever made. B is our humble little beer. Um, and C, uh, we talked to uh, the Spirits Journal and uh, said, what is the highest rated cognac? you've ever tasted. Uh, I think last time it was Inez, a very small cognac house, obviously in France. It's a $400 bottle uh, cognac that won the uh, International Spirits Competition for the best cognac in the world. So that is C. So arguably the best port ever made, the best cognac ever made, and our humble little beer. And we get these food and wine writers who are snooty about beer and you know don't think that beer really deserves the respect that we all know it does. And we say there are three beverages. They're all beautiful examples of their maker's arts. So uh, just taste them, rate them, evaluate them, and turn in your scorecards to us. And we've done it, I believe, 22 times. Um, we've only lost twice. And once, uh, the guy who conducted it, because we usually we hire a... Uh, a, uh, a spirits expert or a wine expert to do it. He slipped and he told them that uh, A was wine, B was beer, and C was spirits. We got trounced. Because as soon as they knew that one was a beer, the rating dropped. 21, uh, 20 out of 20 to, uh, 21 times, we have won. And it's very shocking to these wine and spirits writers to realize that when they had the best port ever made and the best cognac ever made and a beer, they rated the beer better. So this is what we're tasting. 
Um, it's a totally different, again, a totally different way to taste than beer. You don't gulp it. You don't pound it. You put a tiny bit of it, you know, uh, five milliliters uh, on your tongue, and you just let the flavors explode in your mouth and fill your head. I mean, it is the ultimate sipping beer. Um, what I'm getting in here, what's, what's very interesting to me, I mean, it is in the space between, you know, vintage port, uh, fine cognac, old sherry, probably leans a little more in this version to the cognac. Um, and what's, uh, what's magical about it, to me, cognac has a wonderful smell. I mean, I love the smell of cognac. And then you go to drink it, and it has a, a nasty, harsh ethanol burn um, because it's distilled. When you distill something, you take all these wonderful fermentation aromatics and esters that the yeast created, and you blow most of them away, and all you select for is ethanol and the slice of compounds that distill uh, along with ethanol. And as a result, you're left with this sort of uh, very, very hot, burning taste. And that's the problem with cognac. Because Utopius is never distilled, it has all of the natural flavors that the yeast created. So instead of that sort of harsh burn, you get a sweet, smooth, warming fire all the way down. Jim, what year? What year Utopias is this? Um, we do, this is a 2007, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, uh, we do a release every two years. And again, uh, you know, the normal paradigms for how things are done in beer are very limiting. This is not done like you think of beer being made. You know, you think of beer, well, you make a beer, you, you know, you, you brew it, uh, you ferment it, you age it, and then you put it in a package and you drink it. Um, this is not made this way. This is made, it's assembled from a library of casks. Um, at our brewery, we have a barrel room, um, in fact, two now, uh, with several hundred barrels of different ages and different woods. Some of them are 15 years old. They go back to 1994 and 95. And so from this uh, you know, cornucopia of flavors and tastes, we will blend to construct the beer that goes into the bottles. And every, we do a release every two years, and they're not the same because, you know, uh, every two years... The beer is now older, so we're blending from a library of older and older casks. The different uh, woods that we use, we have um, a lot of, we finish it all in bourbon barrels for the original uh, purpose that I talked about, but we have uh, sherry barrels, port pipes, um, some scotch barrels that began as bourbon barrels, some scotch barrels that began as sherry barrels, some brandy barrels, Chardonnay barrels, um, probably one or two I haven't thought of, but um, no Tabasco barrels. That's, uh, that was the one that we rejected. Um, that's a little bit about uh, the origins of uh, these beers, and, and hopefully we'll give you an understanding of the idea of extreme beer as breaking the paradigm that... Uh, we've all been confined with in our minds of what beer can be. Pretty, pretty amazing. So we want, we want to get you guys back out um, in time before Saver ends. We have time for two audience questions. Anyone feel like there was something so burning or a comment from his tasting? The uh, passionate man in the tie and maroon shirt. Yeah, I think it was um, 94, 95, and I don't remember now because it's so long ago. I had the triple box the first time, best friend, good gift from a best friend. When was the first time you released that beer? When was, that was it, 1994. You were present at the creation of Extreme Beer. 
And it was an easy labor. Okay. Jim, Utopia is awesome. Thank you. Um, just on a, on a, maybe you can simplify it for another level, but as a home brewer, what do you start off with with that Utopia as far as like a gravity? I mean, I, I'm, I'm. Don't try with. this at home. But, I mean, with something like this, again, it's not like you think of making beer. Um, You have to keep feeding the yeast over months and months and months because the yeast get, you know, they die. The alcohol kills them, and only a few cells survive. So you take the surviving cells out, regrow them, pitch them up. So you're kind of using natural selection. So it's like a... Yeah, darn (laughs) Roughly. What are you starting at? Well, um, in, in OG, like, like figure. No, 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 no. Figure sort of sixteen to twenty to start, but then you got to keep feeding it. I mean, if, if you back analyze the original gravity of this, it's some frightening number. I mean, it must be I don't know forty or fifty. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right, so listen, before you leave, in the back of the room, Jim, who's been so generous, I mean, he brings you a 15-year-old beer. Come on, amazing. And then on top of that, on top of that, you guys get Utopias. Well, on top of that, a giveaway, the amazing Boston Lager Glass, Sam Adams Lager Glass, in the back for you guys. sessions from the um, Saver will be at craftbeerradio.com so people can listen to this content again and I just want to say thank you Jim Cook Um, and you probably should give a hand for uh, one of the other pioneers in craft brewing Daniel Bradford who is modestly in the back of the room um Publisher of All About Beer magazine and one of the originators of the Great American Beer Festival. So out of that festival, Saber grew. Thank you, Daniel. We'll be at craftbeerradio.com so people can listen to this content again. I just want to say thank you, Jim Cook. Um, and you probably should give a hand for... Uh, one of the other pioneers in craft brewing, Daniel Bradford, who is modestly in the back of the room. Um, publisher of All About Beer magazine and one of the originators of the Great American Beer Festival. So out of that festival, Sabre grew. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Craft Beer Radio. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at beer at craftbeerradio.com. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for more information. The opening and closing music is Last Hurrah from the band The Lights Out. You can listen to more of their music at their website, thelightsout.com. Some people get-